Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. On the seventh day of Passover, we dove pretty deeply into major concepts at work in Ephesians 3 and the theological and spiritual stuff going on in Paul's head as he composed the epistle to the Ephesians. We learned that Paul considered the Messiah's redemption of the nations to be an extension of the redemption of Israel, but not a last-minute add-on. Instead, Paul argued that the redemption of the nations had been God's plan since the beginning. The Apostle Paul referred to the redemption of the nations and their inclusion in the kingdom as the eternal purpose of God. Before reading through Ephesians 3, let's briefly review the discussion and the general concepts Paul espouses regarding God's purposes in redemption. Looking into the story of Passover, the first redemption, we saw that God redeemed Israel from Egypt for the sake of establishing his name and reputation. He rescued the Jewish people from Egypt, not for their own sake, but to make his name known. That Pharaoh might know, I am the Lord. That the Egyptians might know, that the Israelites might know, and the ends of the earth might know that he is God and that there is none else. He used the redemption of Israel to introduce himself to the world and to reveal his oneness. In the process of redeeming Israel from Egypt, he soundly defeated the gods of Egypt and demonstrated his superiority over all the gods. I will judge all the gods of the Egyptians, he said. He used the redemption from Egypt to discredit the false gods of the world's greatest superpower, showing himself to be supreme above the powers and principalities and spiritual forces of this present darkness. Deuteronomy 4, 34-35 summarizes this. Has any god ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord, your God, did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Likewise, we learned that in the future redemption, God will redeem Israel from the nations in order to sanctify his name. When his people, the Jewish people, fall into the hands of foreign powers, it profanes his name because it makes it appear that the gods of the nations are more powerful than he is. For this reason, he says to the exiles of Egypt, You have profaned my name among the nations. The prophecy in Ezekiel 36 and 37 explains that God intends to redeem his people from the nations, spiritually cleanse them, 
resurrect the dead, bring the exiles back to the land of Israel, give them a new spirit and a new heart, unite them under the government of King Messiah, rebuild his temple in their midst, and restore his present among them in order to sanctify his name. He says, Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 37, 28. In the process, he will discredit the false gods of the nations. But it turns out that the nations have been the objective the entire time. Israel plus the nations equals humanity. God did not set out to redeem Abraham's family alone. He set out to redeem all of humanity. This was the whole plan. This was the eternal purpose of God in raising up a Redeemer to redeem Israel. To put this in other words, the purpose of God is that he should be revealed in this world of concealment. When Hashem is revealed, that revelation dispels the shadows of false gods and the insubstantial illusion of other powers. Hashem reveals himself to the nations through the redemption of Israel, and ultimately, through the redemption of the nations, he brings the full revelation of his being to all humanity. At the same time, he discredits the false gods by robbing them of their Gentiles, just as he robbed Pharaoh of his slaves. All of this is accomplished through the Messiah, who sets out to redeem a people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. Before the foundation of the earth, the Lord conspired with the soul of King Messiah to not only redeem Israel, but all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Isaiah 49.6 says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The eternal purpose of God is that Messiah, should carry the Lord's salvation to the Gentiles, even to the ends of the earth. This explains why the Apostle Paul insisted on distinction between Jews and Gentile disciples, and also dissuaded Gentile disciples from becoming Jewish. Paul looked for a day when God's kingdom would include not just Israel, but also all nations as a universal revelation to humanity. Every Gentile who confessed faith in the God of Israel and allegiance to the Messiah of Israel was a step closer to realizing that vision. But every Gentile disciple who forsook his nation and converted to become Jewish and part of the Jewish nation was a step further from realizing that vision. If all the Gentile disciples were to become Jews, then the Messianic redemption would not reach to all nations, but only to Israel. It ran counter to the whole eternal purpose of the thing. Hence, Paul's rule for all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. 
for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. 1 Corinthians 7, 18-20 This is also the same justification that James, the brother of the Master, uses to make the apostolic decree in Acts 15. When the apostles decided that Gentile disciples need not become Jewish, James justified the decision by quoting a prophecy from Amos 9 about how, in the kingdom, the nations would also be called by God's name, beginning in Acts 15.15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now let's read Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Messiah, Yeshua, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Paul speaks to the Gentile disciples in Ephesus with authority because he considers himself to be the official apostle to the Gentiles. He has been imprisoned in Rome solely on account of his association with Gentile disciples. That's what got him in trouble with the authorities and how he ultimately ended up waiting for a trial before Nero in Rome. He considers himself the official apostle to the Gentiles because the Messiah himself commissioned him through a revelation he received while worshiping in the temple. Caught up to the third heaven in a state of altered consciousness, he saw a vision of Yeshua saying to him, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Acts 22.21 That revelation sent him on a quest to understand God's purposes with the nations and how the good news of the gospel might apply to them. This is the mystery made known to me by revelation. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. The apostle speaks of his insight into the mystery of Christ. On the surface, this sounds like some sort of theological or Christological idea such as atonement through Christ's blood, the efficaciousness of his vicarious suffering, the fellowship of the Eucharist, or some other sacramental language. It's not. Instead, it's the same idea Paul has been espousing about the redemption of the nations, something concealed from previous generations, but now revealed through the apostolic authorities. The mystery of Christ is this. The Gentile disciples are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of the kingdom and of the world to come by means of the good news of the Messiah, Yeshua. The mystery, 
now revealed, is that this is what the Messiah was meant to accomplish all along. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in the Messiah Yeshua through the gospel, Ephesians 3.6. The Gentile disciples are to be considered fellow heirs with Israel. There is a wrong way to interpret this. To be a fellow heir does not mean identical status or sameness. It does not mean that the Gentile disciples share the same calling, responsibilities, and privileges as the Jewish people. It does not mean equal heir. A former colleague of mine used this verse to argue just that, published a book with First Fruits of Zion under the title Fellow Heirs, and by means of his interpretation, the official one-law theology took shape. At the time, I was enthusiastic about the book and the theology because it meant that I got to adopt Jewish identity with all its accoutrements. In retrospect, I can see how my own biases and enthusiasm for Yiddishkeit colored my judgment. I wanted the one-law interpretation to be true, despite enormous biblical evidence to the contrary. To be a fellow heir with Israel does not mean I, as a Gentile disciple, share the same biblical obligations and privileges as Israel. But it does mean that I share in Israel's inheritance. The image is that of a father dividing his estate among his sons. According to the Torah's laws of inheritance, all of his sons receive a single portion in the same inheritance, except the firstborn, who receives a double portion. What is the inheritance? Paul explained it in the first chapter of the epistle as the hope of the Jewish people. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12 says, In him we, the Jewish people, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in the Messiah, might be to the praise of his glory. So, in the Messiah, the Jewish disciples obtained the inheritance that God promised to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The inheritance consists of the promises that came through the Torah and were amplified by the prophets, the blessings and promises of Abraham, the land, the redemption, the kingdom, and even eternal life in the resurrection and the world to come. This is the inheritance passed down from the fathers to the sons. Paul explained that this inheritance was predestined according to the will and purpose of God to come through the Messiah so that the Jewish people, who were the first to hope in the Messiah, might be to the praise of his glory. The idolatrous Gentile nations, on the other hand, were at that time separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2.12 In Messiah, however, individuals from those nations who were formerly far away have been brought near and receive a portion in the same inheritance along with the people of Israel. They are no longer strangers to the covenants of the forefathers, separated from the Messiah, and without hope or God in the world. 
Instead, they have been brought under the commonwealth of Israel. At this point, we should discuss the concept of the commonwealth of Israel. In the previous chapter, Paul states that the Gentiles outside of relationship with Messiah are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Gentile disciples of Yeshua, however, are no longer alienated from the commonwealth. As with the concept of fellow heirs, there are wrong ways to understand a Gentile disciple's inclusion in the commonwealth of Israel. The replacement theology interpretation understands this to mean that the church has replaced Israel. The one-law interpretation goes so far as to say that since Gentile disciples are included in the commonwealth of Israel, that makes them Israelites, giving them the same status as proselytes, that is, non-Jewish Jews. That's not what it means. Paul's concept of commonwealth is certainly based on his experience within the Roman Empire as a Roman citizen. The Greek word translated as commonwealth could be understood as a citizenship. It's closely related to the word for citizen. Paul himself had status as a Roman citizen and therefore was part of the commonwealth, the citizenship of Rome, though he himself was neither Roman nor Italian. He was a Jew from Tarsus who had never been to Italy until his arrest. As the Roman Empire expanded to encompass most of the known Western world, it became obvious that they could not control all of their holdings by sheer military force. Revolutionary wars on multiple fronts would quickly overtax the Roman legions and spread them too thinly. Instead of ruling by sheer brute force, the Romans introduced the concept of obtaining Roman citizenship giving their subjects something to aspire toward other than independence from Rome. What's even better than throwing off the Roman yoke? Becoming a Roman. The Romans extended the privilege of being a Roman citizen to loyalists, and they sold it to the wealthy. The coveted status could be inherited by one's children. It was also possible to become a Roman citizen through manumission, this was by far the most common way to acquire citizenship in the empire. If you served as a slave in a Roman citizen's household and your owner granted you freedom, he could adopt you into his household and thereby grant you citizenship status. Paul's forefathers in Tarsus might have obtained their citizenship in that manner, as did many other diaspora Jews under the title freedmen. Elsewhere, Paul explains to the Gentile disciples, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4.7 Roman citizens had political privileges and protections that non-citizens did not. But they were not the same as Romans. In the analogy, Paul spoke of Gentile disciples obtaining kingdom citizenship in Israel. The citizenship Paul sees for non-Jews is not citizenship in the nation of Israel proper, which he elsewhere refers to as Israel according to the flesh, just as he refers to his readers as you Gentiles in the flesh. 
The citizenship enjoyed by the disciples, the Gentile disciples, remained tied to the future kingdom of Israel, which is the kingdom of God. That commonwealth of Israel extends to all disciples of King Yeshua. With this kind of language, Paul intended to communicate distinction between Israel and the nations on the physical and in the natural while indicating inclusion through Messiah in the spiritual sense and in the future political realities. The commonwealth of Israel belongs to the future when King Messiah annexes all nations under the empire called the kingdom of God. The Gentile disciples will be citizens of the kingdom, not just vanquished and conquered peoples. The disciples of Yeshua will rule along with him, occupying positions of spiritual authority, judging angels, presiding over principalities and authorities, and replacing the corrupt spiritual government of the prince of this present darkness. Paul summarizes all of these concepts as my gospel a term he uses to differentiate it from the good news proclaimed only to Israel. He considered himself called by God to steward and transmit this good news for Gentiles. Ephesians 3, 7-10 says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints— This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of the Messiah and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the ecclesia the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places." Paul considered himself to be the vessel of enlightenment to the world on this matter of Gentile citizenship in the kingdom. Throughout the epistle to the Ephesians, he presumes himself to represent Israel, the Jewish people, the apostles and prophets, as he transmits revelation to the nations. The special revelation that he has received pertains to the destiny of the nations, namely that they too will be swept up in the final redemption under King Messiah. Paul's Gentile disciples are the first fruits of that future redemption. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in the Messiah, Yeshua, our Master. Ephesians 3.11 This was God's plan from the outset. Sometimes, when describing our relationship with Israel, The Gentile disciples use the self-deprecating term second-class citizen, implying that while the Jewish people are first-class, our citizenship is more of an honorary status. That's actually true if we are talking about citizenship in the nation of Israel. But it's not at all true if we are talking about citizenship in the kingdom. And in either case, What we have learned here is that the nations are not second string in God's arrangements or an afterthought on his agenda. Instead, the objective behind Israel's redemption is the redemption and salvation of the nations. 
The objective behind Messiah's mission is not just the redemption of Israel. Rather, that objective can be rightly understood as a means toward an end, that end being the redemption of humanity. As the Gospel of John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Such was the eternal purpose of God. And learn from it And find rest for your soul